0: This is One Hate Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne bro. look like gang bangers, working the local 7-Eleven you? Robbery, homicides, take
1: Give me all you got! This and Give me all you
0: got! I do what I do best. Takes you do what you do best to stop guys like
1: you. a podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of michael mann's la crime opus heat one minute at a time ladies and gentlemen welcome back to one heat minute i'm your host blake howard and joining me quite serendipitously is the Managing editor of Screen Space, you've probably heard him over like almost every commercial and non-commercial radio station over the years. Like um, uh, we've we've both had the same co-host in uh, two UEs Dale Sindon at different times of our lives. He's the program director for the Sci-Fi Film Festival. George has a really rad program around Sydney if you know it. Um, he's a film reviewer for ABC FM, which you can listen to on the Central Coast. His name is Simon Foster. We see each other much, a lot of times, and it's so funny, it's like there's that guy who also had the same co-host as me, it's almost like we're <laughs> cheating on, or where the, the couple had the same partner and they were coming together, so this is a really, um, for you guys listening, it's a really important, this is actually an important one on my list of folks that I would have loved to speak to and co-host on one Eight Minute, because you know, I was sort of... Um, probably mentored by, like, you know, Simon's first partner, Dale Sinden. So this is huge for me uh, from a personal level. So, Simon, thank you so much for being part of the show. And we're at the 68th minute of Michael Mann's 1995 crime opus on this insane project. So, Simon Foster, welcome to One Heat Minute.
2: Mate, I'm thrilled to be here. I didn't know who you were until five minutes ago, so I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about. <laughs> no, no, we've been passing sort of ships in the ether for quite some time now, um, yes. and it is a thrill to be part of this extraordinary project. Um, I'm working my way through every one of the minutes uh, in preparation for this show, and I've heard some <laughs> extraordinary some podcasting, mate, so congratulations on what you're doing, and on the minute you gave me, which I'm very excited to talk about.
1: Yeah, look, it's... Um there is no dead air in this movie. I actually was having a beer with a couple of friends, you know, just about to see the most... As we're recording this, Mission Impossible's out, and I had a friend mm. was asking, you know, you have, and I'm sure you have it, Simon, too, and I have it myself. You look at the running time of a movie, and you're like, eh... And, and is, this, is this worth my time and especially if you haven't seen it, it depends on the mood everyone does it right everyone does it and i had a friend and i said oh let's go grab a couple of beers and we'll go and see a couple of mates and said let's go see fallout and they're like oh, the running time and i said look mm. you know especially with one heat minute they know i'm doing this podcast and i said look all 170 minutes of michael mann's a masterpiece. I, I barely take a breath. I'm just so transfixed. I go, and there's 90 minute comedies. They could shave at least
2: 40 minutes off. Of. Oh, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And what what you've done with this podcast is that you've focused in on um, the skill that a director of Man's Status brings to every frame of a film, and I think that's important. There's not a lot of directors working in the business today who have the craftsmanship, have the storytelling now, have the um, the prowess with actors that, that man does. Yeah. Um, and I'm drilling down on every one of these minutes. We're celebrating not just Michael Mann, but also this technique, this craft, this, you know, some would say dying skill of, of old school directors to, to bring that sort of depth to a movie like Heat. A, a great movie, still a genre movie, but in the hands of someone like Mann, and you know, it's an extraordinary piece of work. Yeah, and, and I I
1: agree with you. It's like one thing, if anything, at the end of this project, you know, we talk ad nauseum about man, but you know, he's he's getting these actors at the peak of their careers and he's getting cinematographers and he's got sound designers and even just location scouts that we've poured over in the series. So, you know, we've got a funny we've got a funny little bridging minute. Simon and I are going to talk about, which I like. I like the bridging minutes because it t- it's a tone shift in the middle of a minute. We've got what I like to call fantasy land. We are in fantasy land at the beginning <laughs> of this minute with Neil McCauley played by the never more handsome than right now Robert De Niro um, and Edie, Amy Brenman's character, sitting on a balcony in fantasy land talking about you know, let's cut the bullshit. You know, they're old enough in their life. Particularly Neil, I think he's capitalising on Edie's naivety there a little bit in this scene. And we'll, we'll watch together the minute, and we'll listen, You guys can listen along. But you know, there's a moment here. He's, he's, he doesn't want any of the bullshit. He's seen his crew looking happy, and I think mm. he's found someone. He's clutching onto her, and then we get we we transition into a beautiful moment, a little quiet moment in an Oscar winners second
2: film. Yes. Yeah. We catch the end of, of, of this minute with, with Natalie Portman, which I think is extraordinary. The, 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 the quiet moment, when I first watched this this minute, um, I've written down every line of dialogue from this minute. There's only right. about 40 words. And uh, what I've zeroed in on was, as you say, De Niro at his most handsome, but also at a period in his career in that early 90s when he was exploring the bad guys but exploring them in different shades and in a really nuanced way. So, you know, leading into this, into Heat, he had just done Frankenstein. He'd just done Casino. He was playing bad guys but bad guys with, you know, real depth and and different sort of greys to their character.
1: You bring up an awesome point, Simon, which is I'm going to – I'm gonna, guys, while we're talking, I'm going to slightly do a bit of vamping here because this is one thing I've wanted to talk about a bit, and I'm going to jump on it before we even talk about the minute is just the run-up, like the run-up for De Niro and the run-up for Pacino – To this movie, so I think it's super important when you like look back at their careers. You're like, where whereabouts in their career did that land them? And Mm. um, I I heard someone that turn a phrase of a run up, like using more like a sporting reference. You know, this is what was the run up that got to them. So even if you just go from '87 Angel Heart, the Unto your point Angel Heart, the Devil, Untouchables, Al Capone. He does Midnight Run in '88. Mm. He's got Jack Knife, Where No Angels, Stanley and Iris, all sort of smaller films. He's got then he drops the bomb of Goodfellas, Awakenings, mm. his Backdraft. You know what a great bit role in Backdraft in '91, Kate Fear '92, a few other small ones. He stars in a Bronx Tale, which he you know directed, um, Frankenstein, and then you know rolls into Casino and then Heat. So his run up they've got to be in,
2: like, there's five or six of his top ten performances. Well, that's exactly right. And he, he keeps working, even in these most recent years. People say, oh, you know, De Niro's making Dirty Grandpa and he's making all these sort of second-tier films nowadays. He's also making Silver Linings Playbook and still getting Oscar nominated. He's also making these incredible films that actors of his age aren't walking up to anymore when you compare him to where Pacino is nowadays. Yeah. And, and, and when you say the walk-up to Heat that was Pacino's career, he just sort of crossed over into that. He'd gone from the quieter, gentler Pacino, the whispering Pacino of of the Godfather years um, into the Dick Tracy, the scent of a woman, <laughs> yeah. the hoo-ha, and yeah. then into the Heat, when the Great Ass and all that sort of stuff. We're getting out of our minute here. But um, he was just sort of becoming this bigger, larger-than-life character, whereas with De Niro, he was getting deeper and deeper into the sort of characters he played for for several years, but he was bringing something fresh and new to it, and that's why I think. I mean, I'll go out on a, a limb here and say he's one of De Niro's three, maybe four best performances. I agree. I, I, I mean, I know that that is the out on the limb conversation, but I think that
1: when you when you watched when you've watched a film as as obsessively as I have watched and and, and and say this movie, I can't I can't think of another performance that he's done. But you're right. Pacino has a more inconsistent run up because he has mm. this weird gap. There's the like. It's a movie called Revolution in 1985. He does Scarface in '83, one of his obviously so iconic. And then he comes back with what is a ripper of a movie, but it was like his return, which is Sea of Love. Like he disappeared for four years, didn't do a thing. And so you know, you look at De Niro's um, resume. Conversely, and they're like, he's there. Like he's still he's still plying away at all these different roles. And then you actually see some of the better. Um, uh, I think some of the better Pacino performances a little after Heat, which is like Heat, Donny Brasco, Devil's Advocate, The Insider, Any Given sure. Sunday, Insomnia. And so then then after Insomnia, it sort of takes a wild jump off the bridge. <laughs> so I'm but, it's like, but it's really funny because you've got this like, you know, it's like De Niro is right into De Niro and Pacino's been bouncing all over the map, um, yep. but he comes to Heat and it's like the focus of being able to be quiet and intense – as well as some of those more, the big histrionics, the great ass. Um, Again, guys, playing along at home, I love when I'm going to go back and listen and find how many of our guests do the great ass impression on this podcast because you can't help it. Look, I've done it too. I'm going to find myself. If someone's listening along and you can email us at mail at oneheatminute.com and tell me how many times (laughs) someone's done that, I'm, I'm in uh, in fact, I might go back. I'm, t- I'm warning all of the guests who've been on this show. I'm coming back to you for your best great ass impression. I'm going to cut it into one thing. It'll probably go for a minute and a half of all your best great ass impressions. I'm going to write that down because that's definitely going to be happening.
2: That's a good idea to do. That's a Wikipedia list waiting to happen, isn't it?
1: <laughs> so, so yeah. Look, it's so it's really interesting. And just even you know, I, I the other ones I like to think of. So I, I don't know about you, but it's like Dante Spinotti, who's the cinematographer of this movie he did yeah. this and 2 years later he did LA confidential. And I would ask yeah. you are there any two better looking movies in the 90s? Like there's like there might be those two. The Deacons obviously but LA Confidential even even beyond heat like that Curtis Hansen masterpiece is exquisitely shot. It is so sublime and both set in LA like my god.
2: Yeah, he captures LA in a way that and and, and... Michael Mann returned to LA with collateral and also sort of redefined yeah. the way LA was shot and, and looked. So he's got a fascination with the visual um, stylings of, of of Los Angeles. And and you're right, that certainly comes through in 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 heat. Um, it was fascinating to sort of read up before I did this before I did the podcast. Um, there was some use of green screen in some of the scenes that yeah in, um, in, that shot. In, yeah, in this in, scene, the, yeah. In,
1: in the same location. Actually, it's a little bit earlier in the film, but it's exactly the same location because in the blocking here, um, um, if you're so for you guys playing at home for the 68th minute. It is the original theatrical cut Blu-ray. There are a few varying versions which do have some off timing. So if you if you don't have the same version, I'll just describe where we're up to. It's an hour and seven minutes on the dial here. But at the freeze frame, which are which you'll see on the screen as just beginning this minute, if you're watching along and playing along at home, um, you're capturing De Niro in the right of frame, and behind him is, um, or oh, sorry, sort of blurred in the front of frame is Edie, Amy Brenneman's lovely luscious locks, and and. In the back is the sort of the sh- trees and the shrubbery of the valley that's next to her sort of stilts house in the LA hills, and it's in this scene where they couldn't get the lighting right and they did use green screen. But here, because the lighting is coming from the house and they're lighting it out here, um, they're not needing to use it. But yeah, you're, you're spot on. You're spot on there. All right, guys, let's. We went. We went on such a deviation. I'm having a look at. We this. did. We went
2: right up. I got caught. We're gonna watch our minute. We should have a look at the minute and then drill down on some Look, of the this stuff. This
1: is a guy who's done radio. He knows how to get back on track, right? So, <laughs> Simon, thank you, guys. We're going to watch along um, this minute, and we're going to sort of take it in, and then you guys can listen all, and then we're going to come back and chat about it.
2: Nothing's wrong, baby.
0: Nothing's wrong. Everything's right. when you go?
1: Yeah. Wowza.
2: Yeah, that moment in the middle of that sequence between Amy and, and De Niro, um, Edie and, 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 and Neil, his head stoops down. He says, come with me. Then his head down, stoops down, and he, he becomes fixated on a point and there's a moment of realisation in his character there where he realised that he's pitting his dreams um with her and what he wants from this fantasy world against his work ethos he's going to have to as we know maybe we don't know i can't remember exactly where it comes in the film but when he says you've got to be ready to leave behind everything you love in 30 seconds that's what he's bringing he's bringing her into his world into that sort of time frame and he's almost certain that he's going to hurt her at some point point. and I, this is a heartbreaking scene for me it's a beautiful scene yeah, and you're right. It's like eleven. I, I was I was watching along, and I was trying to take note of
1: where exactly in the minute. So we're eleven seconds into the minute that we're watching. So one hour seven minutes eleven seconds, and he sort of there's a moment where he can't look at her, and I think you're exactly mm. right. That's exactly right. So what's the matter, baby? And it's the heartbreak for him is right now he's the mo- he's the least guarded that he almost is in the whole film. There's some, in the whole film, yeah, some de- de- delightful unguarded moments. uh, in front of Pacino, where, the, where his guard's down and he's relaxed, but it's not intimate. And this is like that deeply intimate, and as you said, it's heartbreaking because I agree, he's looking away because he knows. He's, he knows that if, that if he walks out of that hotel, he's gone, like it's yeah. over. And so he's in this like, this is where he's talking about, uh, and I think we've maybe stumbled onto something that sort of echoes really strongly in that conversation scene with Pacino is, he's talking about not having enough time in this moment he's like i literally have to get this done so quick i have to get this done mm. so quick in order to to make sure that i can survive this like it, yeah. it, for, for this relationship to survive for us to survive there's no way that like there's no <laughs> there's nothing i can do um except except push through
2: exactly and and We talk about how handsome he is and how young he is and and the the, the steely resolve he has of this character. But when in that scene there, when he's looking down and the way Spinotti shoots it, there is the tiniest tiniest, um, tension in his brow. It's not a fully furrowed brow. It's just between his eyes. He gets a little crease there. And he's looking down. And when he looks up at her, there's the, the smallest movements. You can just see that he knows within his own life he's crossed a line that he probably thought he wanted. And now he's into a zone that he may never have been before. And it's just um, it gives so much depth to his character. And when, and when those sort of tiny incremental movements do that, um, that, that's damn near perfect screen acting for me.
1: Yeah. I mean, especially his awareness to even take a beat. Like, So he's fixated on that point and it goes about six seconds along. We're just playing it on mute while Simon and I are talking and Simon's sort of commentating it almost. But it's like he's fixated on this point. There's the far of the brow. And then she says, What's the matter, baby? And he's just sort of ta- like, he, he almost can't look at her at mm. the beginning of that moment, but he takes a beat, his eyes move, and it's like he gets to be distracted. Oh, sorry. He gets to get refocused back from this moment of distraction. Um, and then he sort of says, Nothing. you, you know. He's, and his head, the, the head shake, excuse me, the head shake says everything because the head shake says, No. Like mm. not, I'm gonna, I'm shaking it, I'm literally shaking it off, through like, it. I'm pushing no, through it. I'm pushing through it. I can't yep. get any more emotional, and I, I honestly think that that, as you said, screen acting to have the awareness and the cal- calculation that De Niro has to like be on the brink of tears but holding it like on a nice edge and then be able to shake it off and still maintain that intensity. It, it's it, he's like these guys are special. Simon. like I, I, th- I just, I just don't think that they make people who are as aware of the subtleties and the the myriad of what tiny gestures like that can do to convey and sort of enrich performance. Because, like...
2: I don't think films allow a lot of actors to do that anymore. The, the, <laughs> yeah. the, the, the films that were being made... I mean, this is a, a Warner Brothers picture. This is a big studio film. Yeah. To take these sort of small beats, to take these sort of small moments in a bank robbery movie, in a, in a police <laughs> procedural movie, that doesn't really happen anymore. No. So... Um, this was a prime time for people like De Niro and Pacino to, to make their mark in these sort of movies. And I'm grateful that they were there. Um, this I also want to point out this scene for me, um, the the – the minute prior to this, where she talks about she went skiing, but she didn't really want to meet people. She doesn't like meeting people. Yes, and and I don't want to cross over into the next minute, but you're, allowed, oh, you're and, allowed. You're allowed. <laughs> is that okay? Is that in the
1: rules? Yeah, yeah. It, we've broken all the rules, right? This is we're we are we are Neil Macaulay in this moment. We've got an ethos, we've got a code, but right now we're just going off the reservation. Okay, we're just well, breaking the all next- the rules.
2: In the next minute, Natalie Portman, just as we cross over into the 68th minute, she says, I just wanted to be alone. So this sequence is about people who are um, not entirely comfortable about being alone but are resigned to the fact that parts of their life will be, and De Niro's facing up to that fact in his, in this scene. He's trying to do something about that, but he's realising how tough it is to make that happen, especially being in his situation. So this whole, I mean, this my 60 seconds and sort of the the fifteen seconds either side of it, is this whole really sad sequence about how lonely these people are in the one of the biggest, most bustling cities in the world, <laughs> with you know, with LA as its backdrop, here are three people who are willing to either accept their loneliness, accept who they are, or do something about it which is maybe even harder.
1: And what's funny is that Natalie Portman is excited to be to see Vincent in this moment. And mm. Vincent is that guy too. Vincent, yeah. Vincent's in denial Vincent's like when, when Neil right now there's some great echoes and contrasts in these characters, and when Neil's on the run up here, sort of whatever fantasy land we you know we want to call it, but you know if there is that sincerity of that emotion that he, this is what he wants, Vincent's on the downhill, and I think that's also part of that loneliness I think you spot on is like she sees Vincent and what what strikes me is that she sees kinship in Vincent too because she knows mm. that he's compa- he's he he's got that lone. You know, he's alone. Yeah. He's he's alone. He's a, lo- a lonely guy as well in, in, in much the same ways because he's kind of floating through his marriage. It's not, the connection's not there or at least it's not there for Justine. So this, what what I've not understood until this project is just how, is the finesse of this entire, like there's like even 10 minutes of conversations um, and encounters between men and women Um that echoes through different other story threads that all sort of have shared experiences or have huge contrasts and 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 you know this is just the sort of final one that in that at the beginning of the conversation it feels like it doesn't fit with the other conversations because it doesn't have the i don't know it doesn't have the bite that some of those others have until this sure. until this moment until yeah. you see his guard down until you mm. see in the
2: next sequence. Um, Natalie Portman alone um, on yeah. the street, um, and which is beautifully sort of queued up by the music. Elliot Goldenthal's music in this, which the guitar twang goes from the end of this scene, then increases as Natalie comes in. It's um, I, I don't know a lot of Goldenthal's work, and he and he he went back to work with Michael Mann again, like a long time later with Public Enemies. They they didn't work together um, after time. this yeah. for a long time, but um, the music in in this minute, in my minute, and and into the next is is really beautiful. Uh, he's um he's got what's so
1: striking about Goldenthal's stuff is the it uh, um is sometimes it's really delicate, like a drone, he'll just sort of he'll just sort of sit on a drone and you won't even know it's there. It's like a dog whistle. Yeah. Um and it'll start to immerse you in it and you don't realise that it's there and then it's just all encompassing. It's all you know, you're like, Oh my god, this music's here. He's got a really he's got a really you know, um he did Interview of the Vampire, which has a great mm. score. Did yep. Alien Three with uh, a drugstore cowboy, pet cemetery. So he did some horror movies and things like that. Cool. Did this? He had a busy year in '95. He jumped straight from Batman Forever with Val Kilmer, mind you, um, straight into Heat, um, A Time to Kill. <laughs> God, he's had some good ones. He's had some good. He's had ones. some really good ones.
2: He's had, good ones. Um, he's had some
1: good ones. He's had some good ones in there. But yeah, like that. You're right. It's the and it's also tonally here having that. Um, melancholic guitar really goes to your point as well of this you know, we're talking about lonely people that are trying to find a way, you know, finding the thematic similarity between the two scenes with that
2: same, you know, lonely twang I know with, in your minute with Manola Dargis you touched on the role of and I'm sure you've touched on in other minutes as well, the role of women in the film um, for me Amy Brenneman's character is the sort of the, the, the most pure, the purest shining light is, is quite clearly sort of the redemptive character in the film is offering – What by that I mean offering redemption for, for De Niro's character. Yes. Um, Ashley Judd as Charlene and, and Diane Venora as, as Justine. They're, they're also saviors of their men but they've got a really dark side and there are their own flawed characters um, yes. which Amy doesn't have or Edie does. I keep calling her Amy. Edie doesn't have. So um, I, she, I, I'm surprised she didn't go on to bigger – starring roles in feature films she was great on television i loved her in nypd blue and of course judging amy the few episodes i saw but the um Her role in this just was a a, a gift to her as an actress, and I thought she was terrific in the part. It's really funny that you say that
1: because um, Amy Brenneman has got quite a good – she's quite a funny lady, and in the 20th anniversary where they they had a special heat uh, screening in L.A. and had all the actors and performers, Amy Brenneman was there, and someone asked her a question about her character, and she said, look at the time – my, when Michael asked me to do this role, firstly, I said, no way. It's too violent. I don't want anything to do with it. And then he, Michael Mann retorted like, oh, that's why you must do it. Because I need, I need exactly that energy. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I need exactly that to do it. And then the flip side was, um, which I really liked, was at a time because, you know, she was, she's a, a, a wily person. She, wasn't, she was street smart. She was kind of like, what happened to this girl? So we're Mm. we're freeze-framed on the 22nd, 22nd second second of this minute. She's got this beautiful, warming, like absolutely, as I said, pure, loving face. And Mm. she, at the time, said to Michael, man, what's happened to her? Like, was she abused? Is that why, you know, daddy issues? And he goes, no, she loves him. Mm. So in a really purely romantic way, it's like, oh, no, like this girl thinks she's found love. She feels like, and to to her credit, the sincerity of her performance is that she makes you feel, especially in this moment, like oh, it could be real. Because the the whole thing is, you never begrudge her. She is wonderful, and you feel sad for her, for the ordeal almost that she has to go through. You end up my my wrestle is with Neil, like knowing that he's going to hurt her and being okay with. Mm. It. But that's that ends up being the tension. It's like, God, Neil, she's so nice. you know.
2: You know- she- it's it's interesting that my viewing experience of this film, I, I was oh god, I'm old enough to have seen the Sydney media preview of it oh when it when it came god. out. So I saw that it, I saw the Village Cinema City, um, I think on a Wednesday. Well, it would have been a Wednesday, maybe a Monday night. Oh but, my um, god, that's so. Great. So I and then and then I saw it again very quickly, not long after that, also at the cinema. But to me, back then, and. This speaks to who I was back then. It was a very macho film. It was all guns and bank robbers and cops and Pacino and De Niro and all this sort of stuff, and De Niro at his you know most steely masculine and, and Pacino bringing the big performance. And I didn't really clue in on the role the women played in, in the film. And just to digress a little bit, I recently went to the 70mm um, screening of The Right Stuff, Philip Kaufman's astronaut yeah. movie at the Ritz. Yes. And it was another movie which – um was a came a few years prior to, to heat of course but was also a movie which i realized watching it now is as much about the women as it was about the astronauts um and and watching returning to heat for the first time in maybe 15 years to, to prepare <laughs> yeah. for this podcast i realized how strong the female characters were and the role they played in the men's story as well as having obviously their own momentum and their own yeah sort of forward momentum so um Look, and and you know, you're right. The great Manola Daga said, you know, it's a gangsta,
1: It is a gangster movie at the end of the day. It's a gangster movie. It's men, It's Macho. But these women all have such phenomenal characters, you know, to to, to entangle. I think, you know, you were just talking about Amy Brenneman. And the conversation always starts, like, how did Amy, Bre- Amy Brenneman not do more movies? And then you go, mm. how did Ashley Judd not win an Oscar? You know, how did, how is yeah. Ashley, you know, someone as phenomenal as her? And then you go, oh, my God, Diane Venora? Like, she's just great in everything that she's ever sure. done. And yeah. so, so many of the women in this movie, I just look at the, I look at all of them, look at little bit players, like, um, uh, uh, I think it's Kim Staunton who plays Lillian, Dennis mm-hmm. Haysbert's partner. I'm just like, every one of these women are so vital even Rachel the crime team uh, the crime scene like sure. and Pacino's work wife um I really love <laughs> I really love their tete-a-tete. I really love their energy um I just think that there's so many you know uh, the relationships and this emotional center is what then propels us in my mind to the the you know what allows us the The folly of going into all the guns blazing because it's all the emotional core and then it makes everything serious, you know, builds up these lives and then it starts tearing them all down one by one. And that's what's so wonderful is that once that, once that heist happens and they just tear apart LA, everything starts breaking apart, everything starts falling apart at the seams. And that's the kind of, you know, the tragedy and also what makes it so engaging as we sort of head into,
2: we roll into that last bit of the film. But we get, I think, sorry, I, I just want to say, I think, um, when I when I first saw it, my first impressions of it, I, I, and then in the wake of seeing Heat and the other Michael Mann films came out, I didn't often rate Heat as highly as some critics had rated, and and obviously as you rated. And I, there were periods where I put Thief or Manhunter or Collateral as as quote unquote better Michael Mann films. Yeah. Returning to, for this podcast, I can see the complexities of it that. Aren't always addressed in some of his other films, so um, it's right up there with, with, you know, one of my favourite Michael Mann films for sure. Oh, that's good. I'm great. It's
1: I've, I, there's a lot of um, a lot of folk who've come back around to going, I didn't remember it being this good, which is uh, which I <laughs> which I which I like because a lot of people. I don't know. It's, it depends on the time. Honestly, I'm much the same. I didn't see it. You know, this is showing my age I saw it on VHS for the first time I missed it um, and I was and I, and I was actually you know probably old enough to see it if, I, if a parent took me along but I didn't see it there I saw it on VHS the first time I saw it and at the time I thought it was just cool like mm. I thought it was just yep. th- this was a cool movie and then it just had staying power and I think it what' what's, what grows on me I absolutely watch it differently now even though I've watched it so many times I absolutely watch it differently now being a Dad, I watch it being yep. uh, being a husband. I watch it differently. Um, uh, you know, um, you know. I think there's different characters that you 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 cotton on to and um and you're drawn to. But no, I, I I agree. It's yeah. We could. A lot of folks talk. You know, Michael Mann. Now it seems like it's now really the fad to go. The so Michael Mann is the huge you know unsung great filmmaker that a lot of people really look forward to his films and talk about all of his stuff. And mm. some. There are some psychopaths out there, Simon, that'll tell you that Black Hat's a good movie. Just, I mean, they, those
2: people. I've tried to mention them regularly on the show and just say, guys, stop. Okay, stop. I still haven't done it. I understand. I'm waiting for what I understand to be a much better director's cut or director's version to come out or to come to these shores. I don't know if I've, it's, it's turned up here yet, but I'll watch it then. But no, I didn't see the. That's okay. On the wave, just a no. wave of negative opinion.
1: I didn't see <laughs> the last one, and, and that's fine. And look, I just think that yeah, he's a one. He's a wonderful filmmaker. I think, and there's a couple. You know, the, I look at this period of his career, *Last of the Mohicans, *Heat*, and *The Insider*, and I just go, "Wow."
2: Yeah. See, I backed. I backed *Insider* as probably my favorite Michael Mann film until I started rewatching *Heat*. Yeah. Um, and and you've made the point in other podcasts. Um, he superficially he he deals in these bold masculine sort of characters but he's a deeply romantic oh. filmmaker this like you, you've pointed out in past minutes the um Last of the mohicans obviously you point out the origami scene in this one when he leaves it on the bedside table yeah. in, in heat um and uh he finds just the most sweetest charming moments in in the midst of some real muscle flexing and that's um and he does it without being showy he does it without sort of drawing too much attention to it he lets us discover it years down the track
1: yeah, he's uh, he's one of those really great filmmakers and they, they feel like rarities these days, which is when they're making a big studio movie where they're like, the audience is smart enough for me to leave a small detail. Sure. And then when they watch yeah. it again, they might go, oh, or if they catch it in that first viewing, they might go, God, that's a lovely detail. <laughs> you know, It's a, a really smart <laughs> thing that um, happened. We're only 30 seconds into this minute. This is great. Um, you get Edie's... Beautiful reassurance. She's just absolutely stunningly beautiful as well. It's just not, yeah, put, make too fine a point on it. But she's, um, uh, Amy Brennan at the time. So beautiful, so warm that this reassuring smile. It sort of perks up Neil. They share a kiss, and bang. It's a great, it is a great shot. Just very plain, very, you know, you, you know, it's a very, very closely staged shot of, yep. Warmed by
2: the, the the sun, like in in contrast to the, the the darkness of the night in the scene prior, her whole face is warmed by the sunlight of L.A., which yes. offers hope. But deep down, she's lonely now. Like she's having a sad moment. So, she's the only girl standing outside of a school in
1: 1995 L.A. that's happy to see a policeman. <laughs> she's the only girl. <laughs> that's a great point. Of course, <laughs> like that's something. Sometimes I can just go back and I'm like, you know, this movie does a. I think a totally effortless job at creating a really great cultural diversity without even trying. Like, just this is what LA looks like. We have Michael T. Williamson. We have the amazing Wes Studi. We have Mm. Pacino. We've got Kilmer. We've got, you know, um, Danny Trejo, the wonderful Danny Trejo, Dennis Haysburg. Young young
2: Danny, yeah, I know. Yeah,
1: in his first movie. His character, Uh, name original Trejo. So, you know. (laughs) you know and um, and they and you just come around the car comes around you know nice little stop
2: off in the LA suburbs Vincent, some subtle very, camera movement there as well though like the camera tracks behind her to follow the car around and it looks a very, like it's an a unstaged... very staged
1: it's a very sweet touch too because Vincent's like hanging out the window like in a very cute sort like, of dad to take her hand yeah to take her hand it's kind of cute it's you know as he's coming up there to sort of grab her you know
2: in a, in a sort of affectionate way it's really nice and he puts the i think i i think you'll recall if you if you rewind you'll see the the red flash of the um the lights in his front window there he does a u-turn in front of another car to get to yes. him yes. he's using his police guile to block the traffic <laughs> to u-turn and get to her so that, that's in itself shows commitment oh that's nice yeah it's like yeah. bosco flick the lights we're doing a, we're doing an illegal u-turn here And and we're just going outside my minute again. But when she gets in the car, she knows the the other police officer. She says, hi, Mike. She's she's familiar with with, um, Pacino's world as well, which is lovely. Yeah. And and, and she's the first person that calls him Mike because it's like,
1: I'm meeting Bosco. I'm meeting Bosco. I'm meeting Bosco. And everyone's calling (laughs) Bosco this whole movie. And she's like, hi, Mike. And he goes, hi, Lauren. Like – really cute you know um for a long time she she
2: grew on me in the film because when when natalie portman's introduced at the start she's having that little bit of a tantrum because her dad hasn't turned up and i'm thinking is this going to be the the bratty teen sort of archetype but it isn't and man doesn't let it go that way he creates a stronger character in her as he does in in all the adults
1: yeah i really i think um i think people because this is an you know is a more adult story. I think a lot of times when I hear people criticize about her, it's almost like she feels out of place in a very adult story. But I think man sets her up. As you said, there's a great context. You know, you see her mum at the beginning of the movie, Diamond or Justine. She's there and, you know, she's, she's popping a couple of Xanax to just chill right out. And her daughter who's exhibiting all this stuff of anxiety. It's like, well, I wonder why she's got anxiety because, you know, she's probably got anxiety because, she had a. My mum and dad have had a really bad divorce. So she might have, you know, some kind of genetic proclivity toward ang- anxiety because her mum's clearly popping a couple of Xanax just to walk through the day in LA. Sure. And so, sure. you know, I, I always, I always, you know, again, I feel really, and again, it's, you know, I know you're a dad of two, so it's like it's, it's, you, you have this really deep connection where you just like you feel really protective. I feel really protective in this movie, much like Vincent does now. When I watch her, I'm just like. Man, it sucks. It really sucks because she's yeah. already. Uh, mum and dad have already had a divorce. Her Dad's clearly a dropkick. He doesn't really pay much attention to her. Her mum's. Her mum wants a second chance at a marriage uh, to be young and, and frivolous and not to have a child, and she's sort of yeah. left all to her own her own devices.
2: Which comes back to sort of refocusing on on the characters in the film that I didn't give much credence to when I first saw the film twenty odd years ago. To, yeah. to to focus in on the emotions that Natalie Portman is going through. As you say, because I'm a dad, because you're a dad, you see this this depth in that, that just comes to us through age and our own observations, our own maturing. Um, and that just shows how, how precisely man got those emotions and those situations right. So testament to him. It's a real quiet rebellion
1: too. I didn't want mum to pick me up. You know, I did. Yeah. And that's kind of, it's so sweet. It's like she's a real, at the end of the day, she's a good kid. She's not doing something. You know, she's not, if she was a bratty teenager, she would have, she would have stolen that coke from whatever convenience store that she got it from, or something. You know, you, you, there's 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 all that potential, as you said. You know, we've, we've watched a million movies, and so you you start to recognize easy and lazy story tropes. You know, with different bratty teenagers, etc. But she's just very quiet. You know, before her huge bold reveal, which we see later in the movie. You know, her big cry for help, but it's like,
2: yep. and um, just looking at that frame there that in and of itself, it's such a nondescript part of L.A. It's it, it, To make it look that lovely in that light um, with that widescreen, that's that at doing some amazing work in a scene that could have just been a throwaway scene.
1: It's like they, it's like 120 locations in this movie.
2: Oh, like, really? There's like
1: 120 up. locations. They didn't shoot in any studios anywhere. And so, you know, for folks who might – not be as uh, you know film obsessed as Simon and I. Just listening, if you're a bit of a casual listener, like just just logistics. Like imagine, and I'll just put it in here. Imagine setting up a kid's birthday party for 120 days in a row at 120 <laughs> different parks and having to invite 100, you know, the same guests or whatever. But that's what they're doing when they're setting these individual shots up. They're dragging a bunch of trailers. They're dragging a hell of a lot of camera equipment. They're dragging any stunt people that they've got there. And for the big mm-hmm. days, you know, the truck, you know, the the awesome armored car heist at the beginning of the film or like, um, you know, or, or, or the incredible centerpiece heist that we see, you know, they're going to these same outdoor locations for 20 days in a row just to get Mm. the shots that they need to get and they set them up and the actors are there and they've got to wait for the correct light so they can light match it because we're shooting on film at the time so you can't do a lot of the easy color correction you do with digital photography these days it's just a logistical behemoth you know, mm. like to, to, to do it. And it's that's why it's sort of a, one of those dying studio movies that we sort of mentioned earlier on the podcast. It's so incredible. So, yeah, even things like, you know, um, Vincent is outside in a Korea town, outside in Korea town when he's going to the nightclub. And then mm. he's the interior is a a nightclub that used to be underneath the Payless shoes in another part of LA <laughs> because, you know, so, so to even shoot that one scene, they're not going they, they went to Koreatown for an external cause they thought they'd like the neon and like the setup and like the car park and like the staging for the outdoor areas, but for the interiors, they're going to be a completely different place. So you're thinking they're probably doing four or five setups of the camera and then rolling and multiple nights and late nights or whatever. So yeah, it's a, it's just a beast. I just like,
2: which I, makes the, which makes the, um, his decision to go digital for collateral and shoot the city that he knows so well on film in a new format and create such a extraordinary sort of visual feast for that film. It shows what a, a how comfortable he is in that setting, but also how daring he can be to capture yeah. this in as many different ways as possible.
1: Yeah. Collateral feels like, you know, uh, um, one of the things I just deeply admire about collateral and it was, it was a time that he didn't use Spinotti and Spinotti came back and used, uh use digital photography again in public enemies later. Mm. Um, but it was just about the depth of field in Los Angeles at night. You just can't, that that's the reason they use green screen here. And even in the 4k transfer, I think Spinotti talked about how he, he thought it was more beautiful in the 4k transfer than it was on the film because he was like some of the ways they've been able to just sort of subtly elevate light in, um in, um, the evening scenes and things like that just the depth mm. like the clarity of those scenes now when, with those beautiful transfers um, you can do it but yeah like it, it, it's so you know LA is so quintessential and recognisable and shot to death you're right to find just a random street corner that doesn't feel like it's been shot on before in this huge mm. thing it, it is weird it's it's, it's odd beautiful it's, oh man what a minute I'm exhausted I- <laughs>
2: Here I was heading into heading into this minute. I'm thinking, I can't do it. I can't talk a minute on heat. I can't talk a minute on this minute. And here we are, what, nearly an hour into it. So, we are
1: 40 minutes, 41 minutes. And I love that you're like, I'm oh, so tired. Well, look, Simon, I'm sorry to tell you, but you've got eight more minutes to go back to back <laughs> after this. Um <laughs> Look, guys, um, I think that's the perfect way to end it. Look, as I said, this is really special, and I'm super glad um, that Simon could be part of the show. So, Simon, firstly, thank you um, so Uh, much.
2: Mate, like I said, I'm honored to be part of it. This is going to go down as a a landmark piece of podcasting, not my minute specifically, but what you're doing. Um, so I'm thrilled to be part of it in any way. Oh,
1: look! Thank you so much, guys. Um, Screen Space, so which is um, screen-space.squarespace.com is where you can find Simon. You can find him there. And is it at Screen Space? Is it all one word, or is there a hyphen in there on the Twitter sphere? Uh,
2: no, it's well, it's at Simon R Foster One. I couldn't get the Screen Space oh. name because I'm hopeless tech wise. So <laughs> at Simon R Foster That's... One, it'll always get to me. And you'll always find it. Find it um, over there but uh, and also on Facebook. Make sure you put the hyphen in there. If you search without the hyphen, you get some Venetian Blind Company in Melbourne. So, <laughs> yeah, Look, if
1: you're interested in Venetian Blinds, don't use a hyphen. Yeah. If you're interested in Simon, please use a hyphen. Um, look, it, it's been a huge treat um, for me. So, so, I thank you so much. Guys, thank you so much for listening. Um, this is a, a, a labor of love, but I'm, I'm totally... Uh, thrilled that you guys could be a part of the show again and have a listen to Simon and I and on. Um, we've got a stack of great episodes coming up so I'm really looking forward to you guys um, having a listen, we got the 68th episode, so just as a little bit of a teaser, the 69th episode, which is so full of innuendo, you may have to take your headphones out, has Garth Franklin the wonderful editor of Dark Horizons, and Lawrence Barber, the uh, Australian uh, Film Critic Association winning, award-winning critic um, who's also on ABC News on RN, um, joining me for the next minute. And there's a stack of other great minutes and great people coming along. And go back to oneheatminute.com to have a look at our incredible roster of folks um, and some great ones that are coming up. So... Thank you, Simon, so much again. Thanks, Garth Franklin, for our web design. Thank you, Mr. Paul Davies, as always, for our theme tune. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you on another One Heat Minute just around the corner.